You're listening to Black Neon Digital Podcast, episode 36, George McPherson, from Maggie Marilyn to New Standard Institute, shaping consumer-focused, impactful brands that continue to resonate. Welcome to Black Neon Digital Podcast. I'm your host, Jodie Muta-Hamilton, the founder of Black Neon Digital. And I believe the future of fashion is to honour craftsmanship whilst embracing innovation and to support each other to build brands that have integrity. In 2016, George founded GWM Consulting, which today, based in New York, works with well-respected fashion brands, particularly those with a sustainable focus, such as Maggie Marilyn. Alongside fashion brands who make physical products, George works with companies who are challenging fashion status quo. Think and Do Tank, New Standard Institute, are using data and the power of citizens to turn the fashion industry into a force for good whilst climate action magazine Atmos are creating a new narrative between climate and culture. GWM's partnership-driven approach focuses on building long-lasting relationships between brands, consumers and media. In this podcast, I talk to George about his journey from working in public relations in Newcastle-upon-Tyne to moving to Leeds University, London and New York, we also talk about how the PR and communications landscape has changed over time, why trust is critical to building long-lasting relationships between media brands and consumers, and we hear about some of the incredible brands that GWM is helping to shape today. It's funny that you said that you know you miss you miss England as well because I remember. Um, I don't know whether it was on Instagram because obviously I stalk you on that a lot, but mm-hmm. um, you said something along the lines of, I just really wish I could come back now. And that yeah. kind of really, I was like, oh, why? Because actually I wish I'd be in New York with my friends out there. And I was just like that really, yeah, I was like, oh, why, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I think for me, there's always part that New York is definitely, well, I would say it's probably a third home. There's <laughs> many homes now all over the place, but I'm very aware that there's a home and a heart back in the UK. Yeah. And there's some of that's emotional and some of it is also understanding that there was ostensibly 10 years of my life where I lived and worked in London, where that created like the formative understanding of my job, my career and my contacts. Um, and there's a shared love, I think, of a different version of fashion in the UK that isn't so active here. And that's maybe projection on my part because I didn't spend 10 years building that same community in New York. And if I had, maybe I'd feel differently. But even seeing the way that the industry has progressed or certain voices have come to the fore in in uh in London feels more uh sympathetic in a way to how I see the fashion the fashion industry and knowing also that you know my friends and family are there like my godchildren are there and mm-hmm. now more than ever you know I think that having that closeness to family despite some of it might not even mean that you can be physically close to each other is really important to me so it's definitely a perspective that I have of what, what would it feel like to be across both countries or, mm. you know, give, give myself a bit of that 
honestly that joy that sometimes I feel like I'm missing. And that is not to say New York is not somewhere where I'm happy. There is just a different part of being around loved ones that you then appreciate a different wholeness. Yeah, I know what you mean. And I think, you know, um, we were talking before we started recording about um, different lockdown situations and stuff. And for us, you know, I now don't know whether I've got to check up on all the rules, but whether we can hang out with family or not, or, you know, all this. And like Mm -hmm. you say, whether it's in the same country or not, at least you still feel closer and you're on the same time zone. And I guess that connection sort of different there. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I spend time, (laughs) my partner always laughs at me because I do this kind of barrage of FaceTime phone calls, probably on a really inconvenient time on a Sunday when I wake up, which is pretty (laughs) much like Sunday lunchtime in in the UK. And I'm like, why is no one answering me? And so eventually, then I get these drips of calls back. But it's really, you know, for me, it's really important to like, yeah, be on the same time zone in a way. Because that shared experience is only a shared experience, I think, when you're sort of in the same wavelength or bubble. And um, I, yeah, I miss that, I suppose. Mm. I miss a lot of it. I mean, at least time zone, New York to England's not too bad, really, is it? It's, it's not that bad in the grand scheme yeah, of things. Not, I should stop yeah. complaining. I'm not in Australia. <laughs> no. um, um, something that I didn't know about you that I've just found out that kind of makes me even more um happy I guess is the fact that you're a fellow northerner um <laughs> and we talk about like you know going all around the world and like the foundation of where you built your career from in London and and kind of the perspective around that so coming mm. from up north to London that's obviously another layer onto this discussion so yeah um, Kind of like maybe, I don't know, I still think about, oh, would I like to move back to like, you know, Northumberland because it's so wild and I don't feel um, that feeling from anywhere else. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, interestingly, Newcastle was definitely like, well, it was absolutely, I was born in Sheffield, but raised in Newcastle. And um, even hearing you talk about Northumberland, for instance, like that wildness around the north of England and, you know, towards Scotland is is beautiful and gave me like the best possible grounding, I think, as a child to appreciate nature. Um, so that was absolutely formative. But it also was the birthplace of me understanding what I wanted to do career wise. I had the benefit of some fantastic teachers in English and communication studies as I got to A-level age. and that pretty much set up the beginning of me understanding where I felt I could excel. And certainly from a kind of qualification and education perspective, academically did very well in those fields. Um, And I, so I'd started interning in PR agencies up in Newcastle from, I think the age of 16. (laughs) So I can effectively somehow manage to do, what is it? 24 years? Uh, No, 22 years of weird PR training and these little boutique agencies that had popped up in Newcastle that were very consumer-based. Like I remember writing press releases for a um, car um, seller Mm -hmm. (laughs) that found, like a press release found its way into the Evening Chronicle, like word for word. And I I think when that happened and I was young, I was like, oh, this is how it works. That's how you sort of, you know, are in a position to influence the way people might see a business Mm. or a brand. 
And I don't know, for me, like, if I hadn't taken those interesting vocational steps at a young age, I would have a very different version of PR, a very different version of my career, rather. Um, and when I, yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, no, I was just going to say, so you found out early on, mm. basically the power and, and of words and yeah. how that presented, like, from age 16, do you know what mm. I mean? And that led to you just understanding that power and, and how you can shape things. I think that's quite fascinating from that, you know, from yeah. that young age, really. Yeah, and you know, sometimes I question what that what that zeroing in was. And when it came to choose my university degree, which will be no surprise when I say this, was actually public relations. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was still interning up in Newcastle. Or the entire team said, just go and do English literature. Do not do a public relations degree. You'll learn nothing. It's not worth it. And it's been one of the maybe biggest regrets of my career that I didn't do something more academic. But it also led me to Leeds Metropolitan University and really the core of my friends now in London are all people that I met or went to university with in Leeds. And it did give me a sense of understanding what public relations was as a business as opposed to an abstract notion of just mm. influencing people's desires, which I think sometimes can come across as. Um, and I'm a geek. Like, I love to learn about models of communication. Like, now I forget. <laughs> now I forget what those were. But um, there was a sense of really getting to grips with how we as communicators can impact change whether it be from corporate social responsibility to traditional corporate comms. And all of that then led to a flow to come down to London. Like one of the girls that I met whilst working in a bar in Leeds happened to be assisting Victoria Adcock. And she got me interviews for uh, my first job in London down back in 2005, <clears throat> 2004. And so I, I see this trickle down mm -hmm. through the country, but also kind of trickle up into more and more kind of influential worlds that all of those steps were absolutely part of the process. And how, so when you kind of came to be received sort of, you know, uh -huh. in London, um, I remember quite vividly, I... I definitely changed how I spoke because, for example, I did um, a stint in a PR company, and you know, I spoke very differently on the phone. When um, could I could I accept your returns? You know, it was like all this kind of like you know <laughs> in the cupboard so doing returns. I, I remember, <laughs> I remember go. two things specifically <laughs> where I was talking to um, one of the assistants at Vogue about a Richard Nickel, uh, one of my old oldest clients actually um uh blouse <clears throat> and uh i'd said oh i'd said something along the lines of are you sure you want this because of the stain on it <laughs> and she'd really wanted it because there was only one and you know richard at that moment was having you know his heyday which was fantastic yeah. to be a part of and uh i said but i said the word mucky and she she basically paused, this pregnant pause, and she was like, where are you from? Which was just like this hilarious ab fab like moment, I suppose, to me, where I was like, oh, these words don't cut it. And then I think I also used to pick up the phone to answer the phone at um, uh, Cube PR, where I first worked. Yeah. And um, I just used to pick up the phone and say hello, but in a really northern voice. And I remember my boss saying to me, 
can you just like at least say your name or what you know what are you calling for or how can I help you and like hello (laughs) (laughs) so I was definitely very very rough around the edges for sure for sure and then my friend told me off because my voice obviously has changed I'm no longer a Geordie Mm. and I'm not sure I ever really really was from a you know dialect perspective but he told me off once because I no longer said tea instead of dinner and yeah. come down to visit me in London. He's like, why, why have you changed? You don't even say tea anymore. And all those little moments, I suppose, they do affect how you communicate and trying to be understood, I suppose, by as many people as possible, as well as trying to sort of work your way into the way that people talk to each other and particularly in, you know, fashion uh, in London, which I think has changed though. I mean, I, I, I notice and see in London this like enthusiasm for for people being different especially in like the upper echelons of how fashion works I don't think it's any longer a you know an upper middle class world at all and that's really something to be celebrated I think yeah it's definitely changing but I think they are still working within the structures of the hierarchy of you know the traditional sort of sense I think till it actually changes fully will still you know, like how do people get entry into mm. a role without um, maybe some mentorship or someone bringing them in? Like how, you know, how does that actually happen in effect? I think it'll take a bit of time to yeah. trickle through, really. Yeah. Um, it's just it's just cracking me up thinking about Mucky, to be honest. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, there's been times where even when I first started this podcast, like over three years ago, I was like, how do I talk? Should I say that? And, you know, you kind of this, it's still ingrained in there. And I think I probably now talk more Northern than I ever have for a long time. And I'm Mm. kind of just because I'm relaxed and I don't, it doesn't matter so much. And maybe as part of it is what you're saying, that there's more acceptance around difference. Um, I think it's quite interesting. Um, I was just also thinking about like how PRs changed, you know, like from, when you were at Cuba, I was probably at surgery for a while. And um, basically, you know, samples in, samples out, send stuff to people, um, magazines or influential people. And it's like, I don't know if it really works in that same mm-hmm. way anymore. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I'd love to get your view on that because you still work with um, actual fashion brands as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting balance now for sure. And I've just come to the end of one situation where I was sort of managing samples, which is so interesting to me that within the spectrum of years that I've now worked in this industry, that there's still that fundamental part that needed doing. And, you know, as we were talking about before, I don't work with anyone else. So there was no one really to shift that responsibility to. And there's also part of me that I think because that was my foundation at Cube of looking after samples, I still loved it. I still loved being mm. around clothes. And it really proves to me that I do really care about that part of fashion in a way. I love to make sure people get the samples they wanted. Like it's something about it that I probably needed to let go of a long time ago. But for me, I, I really liked the idea of being somehow responsible. I don't know where that came from. Um, in terms but, of making people happy. Do yeah, you mean, like, totally. There's a sense of gratification. Like you've managed to get that piece for that person and whether or not that ever end up in a publication. But it's also so unnecessary. Like I've realized and realized a long time ago that that wasn't fundamentally shifting anyone's business. It wasn't 
also like freeing me up for the larger, more important parts of the role. Um, and certainly I didn't think that clients were getting the best from, from me to tr obsess about <laughs> whether or not a shirt would make it back in time for such and mm. such shoots. Um, so so the, my business has definitely shifted to not represent the collections, as it were, as in sample management. Um, and a growing amount of consultants, I suppose, or people with small to medium-sized PR agencies um, are, are, are doing the same. There are businesses that have sprung up that are only about sample management, and they become a partner to a consultant. Um, I think in the midst of everything that's gone on over the last year, and certainly the shifting landscape over the last five years, there is not as much room for the idea of samples and collections being the fundamental part of public relations. And I think it also is sort of just maybe said, gets in the way of the larger work that is effectively about brand storytelling that allows us to really invoke a sense of what the business is beyond the clothes, which is where my passion lies for sure. Mm -hmm. And I think about this as like a fashion business beyond the clothes. Sometimes, maybe if I'd said that 10 years ago, someone's like, it is the clothes, what are you talking about? But the reality is there is so much to say and communicate about a business, or there should be. I think to go back a second, sometimes the conversation I have with clients is, and it sounds maybe brutal to a certain extent, but if, if this relationship and if your output is only about clothes, the business itself won't be successful. The business has to stand for something beyond solely clothes and samples because if your consumer only knows you because of the idea of the concept of a garment, they're not going to understand anything about the values beyond that. So I think that's part of the work that I do with brands to more fully articulate the whole like holistic nature of the business and the brand. Um, I, would, I would completely agree in the sense that like when I talk to people, I, I sort of say I'd rather come in sooner <laughs> before, um, you know, there's often glaring mistakes that happen as well. So I'd rather come in sooner, see everything that you're up to, like if you're a startup and looking mm. at who you're trying to talk to in the end of it, because if you start that journey at the beginning, your product's better, the the things that you do are better, like everything's just more cohesive and it yeah. just creates a stronger offering, really. Which is um, where I, I, yeah, sorry, yeah. I'm cutting you and off. I was just going to say, I still think people think PR and comms is like the end part of things, but for me, it's very much something that I'd prefer to do at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes that a client can, can maybe in their in their inness, in insularness, forget to a certain extent that a really effective consultant on a communications basis is this is essentially creating this moment where they gather the feedback holistically from the industry that will shape the way someone can see an individual business or client. And so to be in this position that we're absorbing information on a daily basis that may come in useful 
to a particular client at the formation of a launch or a story or a biz- or a brand as a whole to to forget that that person is just as important on a on an inverse on an on an internal level as an external level is something that i think kind of prevents sometimes a, a client having a really successful relationship with a consultant i don't know if that's articulate enough to really make sense of um we're in a position, I think, to be able to influence the way a business works and the way a business can be communicated about from the outset of, of ideation. Yeah. And I think that's where the business has shifted. And it's no longer just about the idea of PR being how we communicate externally at the end, as you're saying, but ultimately taking all of the information that we have gathered and I suppose that's the part that I feel is a fundamental part of a relationship now that we're existing in this way that through osmosis almost over the over the years we're creating a narrative that can help shape any business um which is what I find really exciting I think as well, like I keep talking to people about, are we moving away from product-led to service-led businesses Mm -hmm. or service and experience-led? And if you think of that in terms of clothes and selling clothes, what does that look like, you know? Mm. You know, yeah. I mean, for me, the product has to be, the product is important, but it has to be seen on balance with everything else that a business is doing. And whether or not that's about um, social justice or responsibility or racial equity, there are and and business model as a whole, the product only makes up one tiny part of that. And I think in this moment, the customer has come to expect information about every sort of output a business has, and without clarity around what those are we're left spinning, you know, gears as to how to get people to become fixated about a product, forgetting that in order to be exposed to a product, the best route is actually by accident sometimes. It's not often just about the media. It's about how does this brand somehow make its way into a culturally relevant conversation that then someone... I wonder why I'm saying by accident because it somehow negates what I'm doing, but it's, <laughs> yeah, it's sort of yeah. true. It's like, I know that the the very best way to be able to create a relationship with a consumer or even by, for media is to really be put them in a position that they think they've discovered it and not put yourself in a place of, here's all of this stuff, come and get it. Mm. And I re- one of the best, biggest lessons I think I ever learned was from... Um, the owners of Stone Island, who I worked with for a little while. And, you know, they have created this beautiful, impressive brand. And uh, the owner's wife, who who effectively runs all communications and marketing for the business, mm-hmm. she was like, we can never put ourselves in a position of being a push brand. We only want to pull people towards us. And it's that pull, which really is about you shouldn't know you're being pulled. It should be about creating the stepping stones for someone to jump over themselves. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the law, laws of attraction in a sense as well, isn't it? And I think ultimately when we 
talk about like push pull concepts and things it's it's you know it's about a relationship and it's that balance and how do you um communicate that balance or you know yeah. you can't you can't not put any comms out and expect things so it's like how do you yeah how do you create that balance and how do you create attraction rather than yeah yeah desire and yeah yeah and I think I think that's a really interesting point for me and I sit sit here talking to you and listening to you repeat my words back to me and thinking what am I actually saying about this what am I saying about (laughs) what my role is and there's a part of it where I feel like I've been told by many people across the years that the important role of a PR is to be like this silent waiter and just deliver food piping hot to a table that is the media. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to be silent. I want to be in a position where I'm talking and I have my own opinions. And it's only in the last five years since setting up my business that I felt like my voice is probably in, in, a, in a place of um, equity with media and clients and the industry. And it's really interesting having read and read and read and thought about this one comment someone made years ago, that only when I put myself in a position where my voice is as useful and important as the other people around me, have I been effective. Mm-hmm. And in that, I suppose the point I'm trying to make is with the building of the consultancy as it is now, primarily working with fashion brands and non-profits that are within the field of responsibility um, and and impact-based design, um, that itself becomes the pull. It's almost, I, I think the way I now see it is creating a portfolio of businesses that I've been trusted to represent is about developing partnerships where there's trust on all sides. There's trust from the clients that they're in a, a grouping of, uh, of clients that speak to their values as well. Mm-hmm. But then the media and industry at large that I'm working with know, I hope implicitly, that what I'm working with are brands that can be trusted, that that is what pulls people towards them, as opposed to this idea of, oh, there's another PR who's just sending me lots and lots of press releases and I somehow have to try and work out whether or not what they're saying is even true. That's the aim I want. That's the aim I've sort of given myself over this last year for sure is how do I get to a place where those press releases that might contain information about sustainability on some sort of level, which we know is becoming a term that people are becoming more and more um, anxious about, how do I make sure that those people who I'm trying to communicate with know implicitly that what I'm saying is to as to as high a degree as possible the truth? And that yeah. part, I think, is really interesting on an energetic level. Like, we want to be communicating about truth, whereas previously the idea of publication, uh, public relations, sorry, has often been about trying to communicate some form of a lie, in all honesty. Like we're trying to uh, influence people on the basis of buy this because it's better than that or be a part of this because it's definitely better than that. But without any quantifiable reason to be saying so, we just want to help people with their bottom line and shift product. So it's been, a, it's been a really big shift for me over the last five years, I'd say, in a really interesting level. I mean, I've really enjoyed it. It's a different way of communicating because I, then you're in a position to tell clients like, 
what we're saying isn't right. There, there, it, it lacks that bit of truth that would mean someone would believe us. And that, mm-hmm. I, I think, maybe I'm being too honest, but that's the bit that I believe in. That's the bit that I feel resonates. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think what, you know, when I see what you're up to and I'm kind of like, oh, that's exciting because George is into that. Do you know what I mean? It, oh, it goes you. beyond the brand and I'm like, oh, what's he up to now? An example of this was um, obviously uh, you introduced me to Will at Atmos and then I sort of noticed on Instagram, of course, because that's where we all live, <laughs> Um that you know Atmos had done something with Polite and then I just sort of noticed that oh now George has Polite Worldwide as a brand and I was like mm-hmm, George has been up to something again <laughs> you know and it's like you can kind of feel these things that are shifting and moving and it's I think it's almost like you're don't take this in the wrong way but like the father of these and they're kind of you know you're helping them to grow and you're sort of like nurturing them and and it's kind of I don't know anything that comes out of the George stable I'd be interested that's that's really kind of you you know (laughs) well you can't see me but I'm sort of crying um uh it's for me and I I do refer to it both to current clients and <clears throat> potential brands that I might be speaking to, that this is about a family. And so the, mm. the, the analogy is sort of correct, although I'd never put myself entirely in the position of like <laughs> the authority of a, a parent. Because, and, and it's, I tell you what's different in that, is I actually believe that I learn and I'm instructed by the clients who most of whom become friends, by the way, mm. um, as much as the reverse happens. So we're in a position where both, and I, I allow this and I want this to happen, that clients will on occasion communicate with each other about the things that are necessary for them with or without me in the, the loop of that conversation. Mm. And in this little microcosm is a sense that we're all on a pardon for saying this terminology, but we're on a journey together. And that sense of community, both in my little version of that, GWM Consulting, um, and the, the, the industry that seeks to promote and develop the sense of responsibility in fashion um, is, is a community where a sense of shared values is is absolutely different, I think, to how it's previously existed. We want to be able to share supplier information. We want to be able to share details of editors who are writing about such and such with someone else who's interested in this field. Mm-hmm. Because only when we actually communicate, when we collaborate together, are we going to achieve an industry that is significantly different and more useful to the world around us. Um, which I really love being a part of. It's definitely the difference between, you know, it was always super competitive and that comes back to the point you're making about my brand's better than yours or trust this and not trust that. And I kind of genuinely do feel that the collaboration element is starting to work. You know, we've, we've kind of wanted it, but... I feel that people are more open and receptive and and understand why it's good and that you can share details and you can sort of say, oh, well, um, 
you know, we're talking about this in in this um, publication, perhaps you should also be included without the fear of, you know, your comment being rejected or whatever it is. It's kind of um, because you're in it more as a whole, you know, yeah. like, yeah, no, many brands, yeah. it's so true. I mean, I think some of the best instances of how the industry for me collaborates particularly on the PR side, is this group of people who've moved out of larger PR agencies, mm. seen the great work that is possible within those larger uh, agencies, but also seen what isn't right and seen how this kind of weird hierarchical structure enhances this sense of conflict and enhances this sense of competition which I've, I've maybe noticed more perhaps when I moved to America, that no one wanted to share contacts, even internally. And one person's editor, literally someone would refer to that person as that's my editor. <laughs> and I'm like, this isn't right. But also I wasn't necessarily in a position to change that. And so as we've, as many people have stepped out of those larger structures and developed their own small uh, consultancy or firm, the information sharing passed between people who are all of a similar age, who are not burdened by a sense of what was or tradition, definitely have a better understanding of how we can all like kind of embrace like change and be a part of leveling out that previous version of how public relations was seen. Like if I if I was to look back now at what my first years were like, as much as I felt like I was working in really interesting, lovely businesses. There was a part where I probably was, if I was to step into it, like, why is everyone behaving like this? I just want to talk a little bit next about um, basically your clients. I mean, ultimately, in terms of your clients, everyone that I know has definitely heard of the likes of Maggie Marilyn. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think you've been working with them quite a while, have you? I, I don't yeah, know. Maggie was, you know, I, I'm at pains to explain to anyone who'll listen <laughs> um maggie's the reason that i'm doing what i'm doing mm-hmm. and um a really interesting kind of circuitous moment of my life occurred when i finished working um at my previous agency where i was i wasn't doing anything i didn't have a job and um a brilliant friend from many many years ago who was originally a part of richard nichols business um uh knew that I was looking for work and we'd worked successfully together and well together um for years back in London and she she'd been brought on as the managing director of uh Maggie Marilyn and we were thrown into this uh situation where there was a fantastic collection that was going to be sold on Net-a-Porter there was uh a, a fantastic business structure that had been developed in, in order for that to happen. And at the helm of it, this young woman, the age of 22, who had been to college and studied sustainability as part of her um, fashion course in, in New Zealand, and knew that just creating a brand wasn't gonna, in a traditional way, wasn't gonna be useful or helpful. Um, and was absolutely committed to understanding, you know, levels of transparency uh, in supply chain and responsibility in how she was creating a brand that would effectively do better or be better for the environment. Yeah. 
and we've learned along the way together. You know, the business grew um, massively in the space of one one year, which for me, looking at how a business can shift overnight, sometimes those things used to take five years. But such was the thirst for a, a new brand, first and foremost. Um, and such was the thirst for a brand that was doing things differently that both media and retailers really, you know, pricked up their ears and and sort of gave us all fantastic opportunities. So Maggie Hewitt, the the owner of Maggie mm-hmm. Marilyn, um, who's now twenty six, I think, <laughs> um, <laughs> incredible. You know, she's in the position now to have looked at what four years of business um, mm-hmm. has has meant, the struggles and challenges within that. And the opportunity to shift and um, pivot where needed as the industry continues to change. And her version, by the way, of sustainability continues to change. I think that's, you know, a very contemporary conversation that we're all facing is we have to acknowledge that we have to be prepared to be wrong and 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 to learn and continue to learn so that we can be adept at tracking what changes need to be made and not be burdened by the fact of if we were wrong it means that we are wholly wrong Mm -hmm. we just need to learn more we just need to be educated more we need to help educate others more so that's the journey that we've been on together that has led to feeling comfortable and confident and relatively authoritative in a sense uh with with other businesses that i'm glad to say knock on wood often will come my way uh, either because of the work that's been seen or through the relationships that have been developed across the years. I think um, something that you mentioned there about being able to understand the fluctuations of sustainability and kind of, um, I was talking to someone the other day about it not being, it was actually Graham Rayburn, about it mm. not being binary, the conversation mm. around it. Um, which leads us very nicely onto a segue about New Standards Institute. Because <laughs> um, obviously you're working with them and, you know, you've just um, together sort of released um, a whole new section to that. Can you just explain a little bit about the Institute and, and what the aims are and things there? Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely try to. <laughs> um, uh New Standard Institute was set up by uh, a woman called Maxine Bedard uh, in early 2019 after, you know, a couple of years of preparation to develop this this nonprofit, which would effectively be a gateway, I think is the best way to explain, to both uh, citizens, media, um, small to medium brands and large brands um, to be able to effectively... Uh, detail levels of information that sometimes become um, warped by the, the the telephone effect of information being passed from person to person without ever really being founded on fact and mm-hmm. citation. So New Standard Institute has developed uh, two essential documents that can be downloaded by anyone actually um, on newstandardinstitute.org. The first being uh, the roadmap to the rebuild, which really spells out in um, painstaking detail, somehow in a very engaging way. Maxine is a fantastic author of this. Um, 
of how to how to look at our industry critically and absorb the information that we're being given as well as be able to be in a position for media for instance to start telling the the truth behind statements and not be impacted by the idea of greenwashing for instance where sometimes we've been told in the many many meetings that we've held via zoom with editors that we know and love that sometimes it's easier just to be able to copy and paste the information given by a brand and not be able to dig into it further because there's no not many realistic ways of being able to get easy access to that information mm-hmm. um the the second part is that maxine has developed a masterclass which we're rolling out as of the 27th of this month is a public registration that anyone can sign up to and the masterclass will be developed on the basis of um the curriculum which maxine has written herself with leading scientists um and thought leaders from across the industry to give the best most up to date information which we know people haven't been given an education into mm-hmm. um whether that's small to medium businesses or media or citizens who are just interested to know more the idea that we somehow have to put all of the pressure on everyone else to make decisions based on whether something is good or bad for the environment without any information at their disposal for me feels like there's so much pressure that the best thing we can really describe new standard institute as is as i said this this gateway to information that is public access that doesn't need to be kept to a certain tier um of the industry um i'm not sure if i'm describing it no well. you are i think it's it's about um freedom freedom of information request um access you know it's about not keeping information squirreled away or you know ensuring that the citations as you said are truthful like one of the things that still gets banded around as a stat is like you know fashion's the second polluting um second worst polluting industry and we kind of now know that that, that stat doesn't hold true so it's, yeah you know that still gets used so if yeah. new standards institute can do anything to research you know spend those painstaking hours of researching around that and actually you know work with lots of various different people to be be like the ultimate resource i think that that's really powerful absolutely and you know i think that one of the things i would say is whereas all the best you know journalists we know may have taken a degree in journalism or english or found their way through a level of education in fashion creatively speaking to be able to document and critique fashion very rare up until very, the very latest generation perhaps of journalists that that will have included too much curriculum on um sustainability and responsibility and impact mm-hmm. to that end all of the great work that maxine is doing and 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 others by the way across the industry from advocacy groups um and, and similar organizations to new standard institute we're effectively trying to help people go back to school in the mm-hmm. way that i can admit 
I need to go back to school. And I'm constantly schooled by people like Maxine or by Will and Jake from Atmos or by my other clients who are creating these fantastic brands. There is a level of access to this information, but it's not often housed in one place. And the other part I'd say with Maxine and New Standard Institute is for, for that organization to be a constant challenge to the industry to not rest on our laurels, to not say, well, because we know this, that's enough. Or, you know, let's let's just take for granted that these certifications for different textiles and businesses are enough to push us towards a better planet. We know it's not. Oftentimes yeah. it's about challenging the status quo of certain conversations that's because they're kept in the upper echelons of the industry become gospel and actually sometimes that has to happen on a much more fundamental grassroots level as well as also trying to affect policy change at the higher level and in the top levels of industry mm. we have to also give people the information now to be able to make decisions themselves some of which is not even about whether or not something is sustainable or not in fact it really isn't about whether something is sustainable at the end of the day it's consumption and the biggest conversation any of us can have, and this is where I get stuck in my own uh, dilemma around what I do, <clears throat> we have to influence people not to buy. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to this idea of how we become less about product and more about service, mm. how do we communicate for brands when we're, when we're trying to maybe help people navigate not being this uber consumer but being more level-headed and balanced in their approach to being a part of a really exciting industry that helps it thrive but changes the cadence of what people should expect and what else can we offer beyond product can we offer them insight education can we offer them a way of looking at their own lifestyle and think what else could I be doing with my day what else could I be doing with my money and that's the part that for me gets really exciting that we have an opportunity with brands to be able to impact consumers' lives and lifestyles without having to always have them spend money. Mm. Create, creating a whole like a holistic picture of it, isn't it? And a holistic experience and of our lives ultimately as well isn't just made more more well by having product as it so I think you know I think that's what we're all working to really isn't it to create yeah. that like you know exchange of knowledge makes us feel better and it makes us feel more connected than perhaps wearing a product when people can't even see us anymore <laughs> yeah totally totally and in that moment of you know whether we call it lockdown or the great pause which is a fascinating mm. um uh title for 2020 you know there is a thirst for looking at what else is out there internally and externally. And I think maybe there's a sense of privilege attached to that where, you know, I feel I have to be a little bit careful that not everyone has the benefit of necessarily taking time for themselves to be able to, you know, go a little deeper and think about what we, what our, you know, our existence on this planet is for but we can offer a, uh, a sense of if we could be a tool to you understanding what else is going on, how we can help educate you or how we can give you a sense of uh, knowledge 
then it's a really interesting place to be in that I'm happy that clients are beginning to come along on that journey. Yeah, I would agree. Thank you very much, George. Um, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this experience. And well done yeah. you for setting up this fantastic podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. Please do take the time to subscribe and rate and review our show on iTunes. Until next time, be sure to join the conversation via Instagram at Black Neon Digital and online at blackneondigital.com. Thank you.